Welcome to the sermon podcast of Christ Church Medicine, the community coming home to Jesus and His Church. For more information about us, visit ChristChurchMedicine.com. My name's Scott, if I've not met you before. Um, I'm the pastor here. And this is an intense uh, story in the gospel. Um, but it's one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture, and as I've prepared this, uh, I have been so deeply moved by this story. Um, I've burst into tears in coffee shops, in my car, I actually burst into tears while I was working out. I'm pretty sure some guy was doing bench press and was like, what is happening with this guy right now? I'm overwhelmed by this story. And I think God wants to reveal himself to us uh, through this passage. Would you pray with me? Oh, Heavenly Father, we pray that you would show us your face this morning. Who of us, Lord, in so many different stages of faith, who of us would not want to see you this morning? Who of us is not thirsty to partake of the goodness of God? God, humble me and give me courage to speak what is precious and not what is worthless in your sight this morning. I pray that we would meet you in your word. Lord, accompany it in power. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, the story this morning is all about fear. Fear is an important part of our life. Some things we have a healthy fear for, uh, we should have fear for. Children need to fear fire, for example. Some things we have an unhealthy fear for. So we can become captive to irrational fears. We fear what we cannot control. We fear what has power over us. We fear losing what we love. We fear pain. We fear death. So fear is a part of our life, and it should be. I think it's interesting. Fear is one of the emotions in Inside Out, that Pixar kids movie, which is trying to teach kids how to engage with their emotions. So we don't want to lose fear. We want to learn how to point it in the right direction. And Jesus wants to engage you in the place of your fears. That's not something that you need to tamp down when you come to church. Jesus wants your fears. That's what's going on in Luke 8. Open up to the passage with me. In verse 22, the beginning of our passage, uh, very first verse, Jesus and his buddies are hanging out on the side of a lake, and they're having this lovely, non-fearful, fantastic lakeside time. This is me imagining. But I imagine they're fishing, and it's beautiful, and they're like, this is great. I love life. Jesus is awesome. I love the beach. Then look what he says. Basically, he goes, well, let's all get into the boat and go across to the other side of the lake. And the disciples are like, sounds great. I love boat rides. That would, that would be fun. But as they get out to sea, Jesus takes a nap and a massive storm sweeps in. And they start actually taking on water in the boat. And it actually says in verse 23, they were in danger. So at this point, it wasn't irrational. They were actually in danger. And they were rightfully afraid. Um, we can do a lot of things in our culture. We can build huge ships and huge buildings, but nothing is matched for the power of creation. We are not more powerful. And nowhere is that felt more than at the sea. Have you ever been caught in a riptide or a wave where you felt 
you weren't in control. I have. It's a terrifying thing. You realize the sea is much more powerful than me. It will do with me whatever it wants to. Uh, in the ancient world, the sea was actually represented chaos and evil itself. So it was this untamable, mysterious place of power. And the disciples are feeling that they're taking on water and they're terrified. They feel completely powerless. And so they wake up Jesus. And I love this. You guys may have heard this story before. But Jesus basically gets up from his nap, <laughs> like wipes the sleep out of his eyes and walks up on the deck and rebukes the waves. He goes, stop that, like a dog. Quit. And he doesn't do magic. He just tells it to stop. And it says the sea obeys. The waves are like, oh my gosh, it's Jesus. <gasps> like a dog before a master that it knows it needs to obey. They just submit. Now look at what happens in verse 25. So he just does this. He turns to his disciples and he says, where's your faith? And they were what? Afraid. Not of the waves. They were afraid of Jesus. They said, who then is this that he commands even winds and water and they obey him? Their fear does not disappear. It shifts. It goes from the waves to this carpenter rabbi on the boat who's just taking a nap. And what makes this story so powerful, even more crazy, is that that wasn't the final destination. Jesus wanted to take them into the storm, but he was, remember, going to the opposite side of the lake. And what's on the opposite side of the lake is even more terrifying than the storm. What's on the opposite side of the lake is a nightmare. Uh, the storm that they experience in the boat represents this uncontrollable, natural chaos and power. What's on the opposite side of the lake is the most haunting picture in the Bible, I'm convinced, and it's of spiritual evil and chaos and darkness, which is just as powerful and I think more terrifying. So like the storm, Jesus is about to confront it. Jesus is about to step into it and take his disciples into it with him. So he wants to engage it, he wants to uncover it, the spiritual chaos and evil, and he wants to teach us about proper fear, properly placed. This is so hardcore. Um, so to grasp this, we're going to read through it here in a second. And I want to pull out three things like we do a lot of the times. I don't always try to have three points, but it just happens. Um, we're going to pull out three things that I think help us grasp what Jesus is trying to get us to see here. Okay? Verse 26. We're going to read through it. You guys there? Give me some nods. Then... Then being right after the storm happened, they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, what's your name? And he said, Legion. For many demons had entered him. 
and they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs were feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these, so he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. Three things. The first thing I want us to think about is this. The darkness exists. The darkness exists. Like I said, I think this is one of the most haunting scenes in the Bible. Um, In our cultural imagination, when we want to portray a scary scene or in like our horror genre, there's kind of a recipe for it, things that are eerie to our culture. Uh, So think of like the classic Halloween haunted house scene. There's like a creepy gate and it always has that weird looking like type of, you know what I'm talking about. In the ancient world, there were things that were scary and they're all here. To a Jewish person, this is everything creepy and sad and, and tragic all wrapped up into one scene. Let me just walk you through a couple of things that are in this story. First of all, this is in the, the, on the opposite side of Galilee in the land of the Gentiles. So to a Jewish person, it's outside of their world. It's outside of their clean Jewish world. This Gentile man, just by being a Gentile, was unclean. Second of all, this guy is living amongst the tombs. He lives in a cemetery. That's scary even to us, right? But for a Jewish person to even touch the dead would have made you unclean. So there's an extra level to a Jewish person that would have made this terrifying. Not only that, this guy is naked. Did you catch that? He's got no clothes on. And not only that, there are tons of pigs in this scene. And to a Jewish person, pigs were an unclean animal. And if that wasn't enough, this man is possessed. And not just by one demon, but by a legion of demons. Who was the most powerful army force during this time? Rome. What was Rome's army divided into? Legions. We don't know for sure, but legions were at least made up of multiple thousands of men. The demon replies, what's your name? Legion. Right? People were terrified of even hearing about a legion. This is an army. This is not just one demon. That's scary. What's the result of all this? Isolation and suffering. This man lives by himself. He has been separated from everything. He doesn't live in a house. He lives among the dead. He cries out day and night. The Gospel of Mark has this story, and it includes that it had driven him to self-harm. So he was wounding himself. So we have a man possessed by a legion of demons, naked, living in the darkness of the tombs, in Gentile territory, next to lots of pigs, crying out and breaking chains and wounding himself. This is a nightmare. The point is, darkness exists, or more to the point, spiritual evil exists. It gets better. It doesn't end here. But I want us to think about this for a second. It's really interesting. In the majority of all of history and in all the majority world today, so in the two-thirds world, uh, people believe in a spiritual reality and therefore believe in spiritual evil. But our primarily white Western culture uh, is really unique in the fact that we've curated this spiritually sterile reality, and we don't like this idea of spiritual evil. 
I recently listened to a This American Life podcast, uh, which is a popular podcast about this idea of evil, and it's so funny how most people just scoff at this and laugh it away. It's like, this is so Middle Ages. Are you serious? Like, you believe in this? I was also introduced to this book by a Columbia professor who's a philosopher, philosopher named Andrew Del Banco, and he wrote this book called The Death of Satan, which is about how our culture uh, doesn't like to think about this idea of evil. And he talks about how we used to think of good and evil in the fight of God and the devil, um, but now we prefer medical and psychological language to talk about brokenness in our world. It's really fascinating. So we use language like dysfunction because that means it's controllable. All you need is to educate more. We need therapy. We need more psychology, and we can work our, our ways out of this. But this guy is not a person of faith, and he even admits our culture suffers from not having language to engage with the idea of evil. Listen to this quote. This is such a bomb. Quote, this is from this philosopher's book. The work of the devil is everywhere, but no one knows where to find him. We live in the most brutal century in human history. He wrote this in the 20th century. But instead of stepping forward to take the credit, he has rendered himself invisible. Although the names by which he was once designated have been discredited to one degree or another, nothing has come to take their place. Yet... Something that feels like this force still invades our experience. And we still discover in ourselves the capacity to inflict it on others. Since this is true, we have an inescapable problem. We feel something that our culture no longer gives us the vocabulary to express. He's acknowledging that darkness is in our world. I love how he's uh, self-aware enough to acknowledge that he acknowledges it in himself. He has the capacity to inflict it on others, but we don't have any vocabulary for it. Our culture brushes this into the closet. We kind of put it away, or we repackage it as entertainment in TV shows and movies, and we can see it there. We can engage with it there, but it's not real, right? It is Jesus and his word in scripture that we run to for authority and vocabulary. Flip to your Ephesians 6 passage this morning. This is the one that Claire read. It's one page to the left of the gospel. Listen to what Paul says right here. This is a pretty famous passage. You may have heard this before. Maybe not. Verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Schemes is a word that could mean strategy. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The Bible teaches us that the world is not purely physical. It's not purely psychological. There's a spiritual reality that we all live in. And it reveals to us and it gives us vocabulary for God. Jesus reveals God. He's good. His mercy endures forever. He loves us. But it also teaches us that, to quote Ephesians 6, there are spiritual forces of evil. So there are spiritual beings that have rebelled against God and his Messiah and hate this world, and they want to corrupt and destroy the creatures of God. Paul says this is what we're wrestling against, and Del Banco is saying this is what we see invading our experience. Something is still working. And we also feel it wrestling in us internally. We engage this ourselves. Um, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, love saying his name, is a really famous Russian writer who was in the gulag 
and wrote a book called The Gulag Archipelago. Have you pronounced that word? You forget how to pronounce things when you're preaching, but it's okay. Um, and it's this really powerful book. This guy endured the most horrific things in the 20th century. And he wrote this. This is so good. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessarily only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them, right? Only if we knew, oh, those people are the wrong ones. They're evil. Let's just get rid of them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? Isn't that beautiful? Let's come back to Luke 8. What does Luke 8 teach us uh, about evil as we engage with it here? Not only that it exists, but that it's powerful. It drove, this, it drove this man to isolation and suffering. People tried to bind it and control it themselves, and they couldn't, right? It broke chains. It broke free from all that. I know this is a hard conversation. I know talking about stuff like this can bring up a lot of different questions and emotions, and I want to be really pastorally sensitive to that. Uh, like I said, we're not going to get here. It gets really good in a second. But I do want us to pause and acknowledge the enemy. C.S. Lewis said, the two mistakes you can make when you're thinking about the devil and the demonic is either to think way too much about him. Everything's spiritual and everything's demonic. That's probably the ditch of the Middle Ages. But he says, the other mistake you can make is to not believe in them at all. And that's probably our issue in Madison, Wisconsin. Ephesians is saying, there's a battle going on. It exists. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. So the battle's been exposed. The stage is set here, and this is where it gets awesome, okay? Point number two is this. Number one, the darkness exists. Number two, Jesus enters the darkness. Jesus enters the darkness. Remember how this story starts. Look at verse 22 again. Flip back to your gospel reading. Verse 22 says this, one day he got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let's go to the other side of the lake. <laughs> Think about what that means. That means Jesus knew about this guy. Come on. He knew about this man, naked, living in utter agony and darkness, suffering, unable to be helped. He had been rejected and put away from all culture and all people and all society. He knew about this nightmare, and he wanted to go into it. Hallelujah. To translate that again, Jesus knew that there were spiritual forces of darkness. He knew there was a legion of evil, viciously ruling. And when Jesus says that to his disciples, I want to go over there, he's saying, I declare war. Come on. I'm going in. I want to do battle. We rightfully have an image of Jesus that's so tender and sweet, right? He takes kids and he puts them on their knee, and he does. The Bible says, we give us this image that he is the Lamb of God. A bruised reed he will not break. And that is so true. But the Bible also gives us another image of Jesus, and that is that he is the Lion of Judah. And that image is meant to convey all spiritual, regal authority and beauty and power that you can possibly imagine. So your picture should be of Jesus crossing the lake right here, like George Washington crossing the Delaware. You know that picture where he's got his leg up? It's this fierce, epic crossing. 
Jesus is crossing the lake to battle and take on a legion of darkness. Praise God. This is hardcore. This is what Jesus does. The gospel is fundamentally about Jesus entering into our darkness, of crossing from safety on one side of the lake. He didn't have to. This man probably was complicit in some invitation to evil, right? But he crossed. The incarnation is him crossing into our flesh. The descent to the dead is him entering in and crossing into the depths of hell. On the cross, Jesus literally chose to enter into your shame and death and sinfulness. Think about the times you've most felt shamed in your life and guilty. Think about the worst possible internal moments you've had. Jesus decided, because he loved you, to enter into that experience with you and experience it in ways that you and I can't even possibly imagine. Amen? Amen. Praise God. Evil, the demonic, wants to drive a wedge between you and God and us and one another. That's what it wants to do. It wants to isolate us. Jesus, the gospel, is about him crossing the gap. Jesus wedges things back together, and he still does to this day. There's no heart too hard. There's no place in the world that's too opposed to him. Nothing is beyond his reach to cross. That's the kind of God we worship. Don't you love him for it? Don't you just want to worship him for it? He didn't have to do that. He's doing it today. He's done that to me this week. (laughs) Praise God. Now what happens? That's cool, but it gets way better than that, okay? Number three, so the darkness exists. Jesus enters the darkness. Number three, the darkness is terrified of Jesus. (laughs) The darkness is terrified of Jesus. Look at verse 27. He steps one foot on land in this nightmare, and the legion of demons immediately surrenders. It's over. The demon runs forward and said, what have you to do with me, son of the most high? God, I beg you, do not torment me. He's just begging for mercy immediately. No one has been able to bind this guy with chains even, even physically, and he immediately, it's just done. Don't miss the contrast of power here. Isn't this shocking? This is almost to the point of being comedic. One word from Jesus, one foot from Jesus, and it's done. The darkness itself shudders at the thought of the line of Judah. Amen. Utter and complete authority. It's not even a fight. They enter the pigs, and the pigs go into the sea, which is that place of evil and chaos and unknowing. They're gone. Remember, the waves are uncontrollable. They were powerless before the waves, and Jesus rebukes them, and they still. What happens here? The spiritual evil is uncontrollable. Jesus enters into it, and he rebukes it, and he brings order out of the chaos. This story is like a microcosm of what Jesus has been doing everywhere throughout history. He enters into enemy territory. He takes it back. This is what God does, and one day he will do that for good, and all evil will be banished forever. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jack. All right, let's see how people respond to this. This is just as important and just as fascinating. 
Okay, we're going to read a, a chunk again. Verse 34. Guys, go there with me in your, uh, in your bulletins. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, okay, so people were watching this, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. So they're going around and they're telling everybody. This is beyond like somebody going to their home. This is like hitting the news, okay? Then people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were what? Afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. So they said, here's how this all shook out. Jesus just stepped off the boat and it was done. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged, don't you love this guy, that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has, has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. The same thing happens in this place that happened on the boat. Jesus does this amazing thing, and everybody there, their fear doesn't disappear. It just shifts. They were once probably afraid of this man, but now they turn to Jesus, and they're like, who then are you? And there are two different responses to the fear of Jesus. The first is from the townspeople who ask Jesus to leave. I find this fascinating. Uh, it doesn't tell us why they asked him to leave. And it's, I used to always think it was probably because a lot of their pigs just died. But actually, the text doesn't really allow you to, to think that. Because when they come, it says they're afraid when they see the man clothed in his right mind. And it's all the people. When they learn of how Jesus healed the man, that ask him to leave. And it's everybody from the rounding country. So why, does, why do they want Jesus to leave? My hunch, even though it's not explicit in this passage, is that this challenged their worldview just too much. This man who was possessed with demons was messed up. He was probably an issue for them and their culture, but they lived with it. They were still in charge of their life. They just kind of siphoned him off. But the power of Jesus so clearly displayed shattered their world, and they weren't willing to accept the ramifications of what came with what they saw. Does that make sense? They saw the evil that overpowered them be utterly powerless before Jesus, and that meant that this Jewish rabbi truly was who he said he was, right? And that meant they weren't in charge. And that meant that they were helpless apart from this man's shelter. And they couldn't take it. They were like, no, 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 I, I don't, I want to go back. Put me back in the matrix. They couldn't handle the truth. They preferred living with this guy suffering, right, as long as it didn't hurt them. That's an indictment. They preferred living with evil instead of worshiping Jesus. They didn't, they, no, I don't, go back, take me back. I think this would be like us being confronted with this revelation of Jesus, even this morning, saying, no, I prefer the sterile world. I'd rather have the illusion of no evil because if this is true, it means I'm helpless before evil in this world. And the only one who can save me is Jesus. That's what this means. 
And I'm not willing to give that up and admit I need Jesus. I don't want it. Put me back. I pray that God will expose that temptation in all of our hearts this morning. I think we need to hear that. Don't over-intellectualize this. The second response, though, is from the man, and I love it so much. Yes, this guy feared God. Of course he feared Jesus, but fear of God is a good thing. You see, all the ramifications that we just thought about of seeing Jesus do this, so think about it, that we aren't in control, that we are powerless before the evil forces in this world, and that we need his protection and his shelter. Do you know what the Bible calls that fear? The beginning of wisdom. (laughs) Smart people, this is where their wisdom starts, that fundamental realization. I thought a lot this week in the end of the Gospel of Luke on the cross, when Jesus is dying, there are two thieves being killed on, one, on both sides of him. And one of them is, is kind of haunting, is throwing insults at Jesus, saying, if you're the Messiah, why don't you save us? Do something. He's kind of taunting him. And the guy on the other side looks at him and says, do you not fear God? And then he turns to Jesus and says, Jesus, please remember me when you come into your kingdom. In other words, this man who was literally dying at the hands of the Romans feared Jesus, this man who was dying next to him, more than he did anything else. And he did the same thing this guy does. He begged him for mercy. He came to him for shelter. And that's what this guy does. He knows he's powerless before evil, right? This man was just dug up from the depths of darkness. He has no illusions. He also knows that Jesus is the Lion of Judah, the one with authority, because he just experienced it. And so he sits at his feet. He clings to him. This guy does not want to let Jesus get out of his sight. He rushes to him. Um, I want to finish this morning with a story. I prayed with a guy this week uh, who's part of this. is amazing. So there's a, there's a diocese in our denomination, and uh, it's a little bit unusual. It's kind of diocese where, where bishops get tattoos frequently. So the, the bishop of the diocese was in a tattoo parlor getting a tattoo, And if you've ever been tattooed or hung out in tattoo parlors, you'll know that they're pretty dark. The tattoo culture is drawn to to darkness as kind of a a culture. And the tattoo artist tattooing this bishop um, started talking to him about evil because he had experienced and kind of come into contact with evil and was shocked by it. It drove him so much to talk to this person. I need help. I need vocabulary. I need shelter. I don't know what it was. And the bishop said, yeah, that's a thing. And he started talking to him about it and affirming it with him. And then he said, but that's not the good stuff. You know what the good stuff is? The power of God. And so that day, the bishop leads this man and his wife to the Lord. They meet Jesus in this really powerful way. And then the guy ends up planting a church in his tattoo parlor. So their diocese is covered in tattoos because they're all tattoo artists. Uh, It's kind of hilarious. But I love that because that's what happens with this man. He experiences evil, and then he wants shelter. He wants to meet the Lion of Judah, and he found him. He met him. And I love how it ended. The man wants to be with Jesus, but what does Jesus say? No, you can't come with me. Isn't that fascinating? That's a sermon in and of itself. Sometimes Jesus is going to ask you to stay. And why does he ask him to stay? Look at it really quick. 
He asks him to stay so that he can tell people what happened. So Jesus comes. He liberates this man. He takes back ground from the enemy. And what does he do? He leaves a preacher in the middle of it. He unleashes this guy to be an ambassador of light who then would go on and continue to tell other people that Jesus is the Lion of Judah and is the only hope we have before our sin and before death. That's exactly what happened with the tattoo artist. He leaves him there, and now other people are experiencing the light of God. Isn't that awesome? Brothers and sisters, we are spectators too. This passage is for us. You are encountering this revelation of God right now. Spiritual forces of evil are real. Before them and before our sin, we are powerless. But behold the love and the mercy and the unflinching power of God. Amen? Fear him. Let the holy fear of God drive you towards him. He's good. His mercy endures forever. Find your shelter in the shadow of his wing. I pray that God would also expose, just like he does with this man, any ways that we have been complicit with evil, that Jesus can heal us and cleanse us and bring us freedom. Would you pray with me? God, we acknowledge your power. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge all the ways that we are helpless. We admit it. Lord, we acknowledge our need for you. And Lord, we worship you. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would send your spirit to us now to work in us, Lord. Lord, I pray for any, any of us who are currently struggling with anything that feels like chains and darkness. We ask for your power. Help us to run to you. Lord, help, help our community and our church as a whole to run towards you. Manifest yourself among us, Lord. We pray all this in your name. Amen.